Welcome to Fuel Podcast. I'm your host, Leela Ansart, leadership advisor and certified executive coach. On this podcast, you'll hear the stories of successful individuals and how they were able to overcome adversity by channeling strength from an internal driving force. My mission, shine the light on alternate strategies that can move you from reactive to strategic thinking, from overwhelmed to motivated, and from burnout to balance, so you can move forward and over-deliver on your current goals. Let's dive in. My guest today on the podcast is William A. Adams, who is an award-winning D&I innovator, an engineering trailblazer, and a philanthropist. From an early accomplishment of rolling out critical XML code to many of Microsoft's core products globally, he was later named the first technical advisor to the CTO of Microsoft, Kevin Scott. William has founded and overseen global initiatives that revolutionize how underdeserved communities access jobs and build careers at the company. As co-founder of the Microsoft Leap program, named Microsoft's D&I program of the year in 2020, he helped launch the training of more than 26 cohorts around the world. Today, a high percentage of Microsoft Leap participants obtain jobs within Microsoft or other high-tech companies. His most recent collaboration has been in the U.S. Virgin Islands, developing a strong tech ecosystem, training technical talent, and evolving critical technical infrastructure. Early in his 35-plus year software engineering career, William was one of the first Black entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. Through his company, Automation, he developed mission-critical custom enterprise apps for Steve Jobs' Next Computers and pioneered a network instant messaging service purchased by the CIA. He holds two patents. Today, in addition to his role at Microsoft, William is the philanthropic founder of The Event, a collaborative, community-based hackathon designed to solve real-world problems. When he's not tinkering with bits and bytes, the husband and father of three builds kitchen cabinets, knits, and tries to recapture the exhilaration of riding a motorcycle in India. I found so much value in this conversation. We talked about so many topics, from how he architected diversity programs at Microsoft to have financial longevity so that funding for them couldn't be cut off when some kind of a money squeeze was happening, We talked about how certain phrases can perpetuate biases and how a shift in perspective and terminology helps to bring more diversity of perspectives into the workplace. He shared a story of the impact of being the only Black person at Microsoft for at least 15 years, and the moment he realized there was something specific he was called to do and how that vision took conviction and perseverance to see it through. If you enjoy this conversation half as much as I did, this may be your favorite podcast episode of the entire month. Welcome to the podcast, William. I am thrilled to have you on today. For uh, those of you that are watching the video, you can see I'm doing a little cheer. Um, William A. Adams is the technical advisor to Microsoft CTO and an absolutely phenomenal human. I've had the pleasure to speak to him prior to today and learn about many of the initiatives and projects that he's not only created and spearheaded, but is extremely passionate about. And I'm thrilled to have him on today to share with all of us some of his stories and his life experience. So William, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Lila. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you would take a moment to introduce yourself to the audience, let us know what you do um, both professionally and as a human. As a human, that's the best part, right? So it is. William A. Adams, um, how, to, how to introduce myself. I'm a, a 57 year old black dude who's been in tech from the beginning of my life. I've been programming since I was 12 years old. Um, I ran my own company for a number of years with my brother, um, my biological brother. And uh, eventually I went off to Microsoft in 1998 and I've been there for 24 years um, delivering tech. I'm a software guy, so I um, write code, manage teams, build teams, um, all that sort of stuff. And in 24 years at Microsoft, I've just done all sorts of other amazing things that uh, some of which we'll talk about. Awesome. Oh, and as a human, I, yes, I care about people. <laughs> <laughs> I care about people. I care about intergenerational um, wealth development. I care about lifting people out of poverty, uh, all sorts of things like that. Absolutely. Well, it's it's uh, such a the silver thread, you know, that I can see through so much of the work that you've done, just looking you up and, and seeing some of your projects and, and what you do and, and how where you stand in the world. Um, tell us a little bit about Microsoft's LEAP program. I think that would be a great intro into helping people understand what you do on a practical level. Yeah, so uh, the Microsoft LEAP program um, actually has a long history that began in India, but I'll start with uh, in 2015, um, I was uh, asking one of our corporate vice presidents, what's a big challenge? You know, I'm looking for a big challenge. And he mentioned this need for uh, better diversity in hiring. And so I thought, okay, let me just go and jump on that. <laughs> you know, uh, more women and underrepresented minorities essentially in engineering. And I thought, well, let's just break it down as an engineering problem. You know, how hard could it be? Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out, you know, it's a, quite a big challenge. Um, but I, I, I cast an eye around and said, what are we doing? You know, we were spending tons of money, literally millions of dollars on programs um, that I would call pipeline, but we weren't spending a lot of effort on actually hiring people. Uh, and there were reasons for that. And it, it roughly breaks down to, we don't know how to evaluate people who don't come from the typical path that we're looking on. Hmm. Uh, that was the bottom line. So if you didn't come through the top 15 CS programs in the uh, colleges, um, or you didn't have 10 years of experience already in tech, there was just no way for you to come in. And for women and minorities, that kind of identifies them. You know, they don't have, they're not at the top 15 schools necessarily, um, or they were like moms returning to work. Yes. And uh, moms who have CS degrees who stopped to raise the family, they have no way in because anyone who looks at the resume would say, huh, you're out of date for by seven years. And that's the end of the conversation. You know, mm -hmm. never mind that they already have a CS degree and probably they're awesome because they raised a family for seven years. You just wouldn't get past that point, right? Yeah. Um, and then for minorities, you know, women and minorities who are coming from different walks of life, like how does the, the person who was a biotech engineer or a biotech lab um associate or assistant, how do they get into tech? They've decided to go to a coding academy. They're into it. They've learned Python. They're doing web development. You know, they're as tech as anyone else. 
But again, people are going to look and say, well, you don't have a CS degree and you've only been programming for a year. You're not a college hire. So, and that's the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, so Leap comes in and says, hold on, let's, um, let's look at those people and uh, let's create an apprenticeship for them because that's what's missing, right? Um, the college hires have it easy because they just go through internships, right? And that's the normal way that you get hired through college. Well, these people aren't going to go through an internship. They've already done all that college stuff. Yeah. So you need an apprenticeship sort of thing. So we set that up. Um, and then uh, the other part of it was training our people how to look at people differently, right? It's, it's one thing to have the apprentices available. It's another thing to go to a hiring manager and say, you know what, having them try to code a bee tree on a whiteboard in 15 minutes in a live interview, it's probably not the best way of evaluating people, right? You need to look better, uh, deeper at their ability to collaborate, you know, or how are they a team player or how can they problem solve in general? I, I bet that person who was a barista is probably has great customer empathy, uh, mm -hmm. probably more so than your college hires from MIT. So isn't that a valued skill and on and yeah. on like that. So we had Absolutely. to really the lead program is about training ourselves how to look at people different. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. um, so we, we started that program and we used a cohort model uh, so that we could bring people in batches because I knew that having a social fabric was necessary. So they would come in in groups of initially it was like 20, 30 and um, now we have mega cohorts. Um, mm. But that's how we started and we just kept at it and there's, there's plenty of stories of, you know, woe and despair in the development of the LEAP program, but we just kept at it. And now it's in its uh, seventh year, about to celebrate eight years. Um, and now it's just a thing that we do at Microsoft, you know, it's federally accredited and all that sort of stuff. So that's really, that's really wonderful. And where did this brainchild come from? From my thick noggin. I mean, it was essentially, <laughs> it was essentially, I have a, a, a partner in crime. Uh, her name is Chun, and uh, she was in the HR side. And so when we initially talked to this, uh, this uh, executive who set us down the path, he said, oh, and talk to Chun. <laughs> and from there on, it was completely our own creation. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's a little bit of history. I mentioned India. I was in um, in India from 2006 to 2009 working for Microsoft. And one of the challenges we had was an influx of about 300 college hires every year, every mm -hmm. summer. The office only had a thousand people in it. So you're, you're increasing your office size by 30%. Yeah. You, have, you don't have an ability to train all those people. Uh, so I created a program to onboard them where they would come to me for the first five weeks of their life at the company. And I would train them how to be software engineers. Um, that's why Leap, and that program was called Leap. Okay. Um, and it was Leap Engineering Acceleration Program. So I was accelerating their learning, right? Yes. So that was, I had that in the back of my head. I knew how to train engineers. And I knew that having them come in in cohorts was important for them to stick around. Um, so I, I knew that because I had that experience. So roll forward to 2015, and I leaned on that experience and said, well, it's the same thing here. They're not college hires, but it's the same dynamics. It's a minority group coming into a majority culture, and they need to link arms so that they find affinity so that they can stick around and find support and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, five weeks training was the same 
happen as well. It's like, well, you got to train them how to be an, a software engineer. So, um, so that's where it came from, really. Some experience and just some like, I bet we can try this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I'm sure there were plenty of setbacks along the way. Uh, tell us about one or two of those, if you would. Yeah, I, a lot of the setbacks have to do with the ingrained culture of where uh, we are trying to enact this, right? Uh, now, Microsoft is no different in this way than any other tech company or any company for that matter. Everybody is trying to deal with increasing diversity of their workforce. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the things that hinder you are um, institutional sorts of things. The, the institution doesn't realize it's even doing it, right? There's certain biases and, and key phrases that, that you hear, like, we don't want to lower the bar, mm -hmm. for example. That's got to be a common phrase across every industry. It's like, if you try to nail people on it, I say, what do you mean, the bar? <laughs> yes. And we would have to turn those phrases to say, it's not about lowering any bar. It's about casting a wider net, Yeah. right? It's like, you're not playing limbo here, yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where it's like people are trying to get under the bar or over the bar. It's like, forget that. You're trying to cast a wide net because you need inclusion. You need more yeah. voices. You need diversity of perspectives or your um, product development is going to ossify because you're all the same, right? Right. <laughs> it's like you're going to lose your market if you can't diversify your thought processes. Um, so certainly the lowering the bar thing. Um, now, granted, in tech, all those people who were hired from Stanford, Harvard, Berkeley, you know, these are all people who's like, well, I've worked my whole life. I've got a master's degree in CS and what, and you're going to bring this barista in here and they're going to get paid the same as I am? No way. So there's some resistance there where the people who are in the culture are like, you can't be the same as me because right. I worked really hard to get where I got. So there's that sort of thing. And we just flat out had people tell us, we're not going to hire anyone who doesn't have a CS degree. We're only doing this because we were told to do it. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, you're off the island. So, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, you have, um, uh, I mean, now the program is uh, housed within uh, HR, human resources, as, as was our goal from the beginning. But, but in the very beginning, it was not. Mm -hmm. So we had, I would say, passive um, passive resistance to us existing sure right plenty of people whose job it was to hire diverse talent looked at us sideways like well what are you gonna do right mm -hmm. and and they wouldn't they would um there are plenty of people who either actively or passively just wish we would fail yeah right because we were kind of showing a different thing that wasn't i mean we're kind of in their wheelhouse so it's like it's threatening. Right. Um, so there's things like that. But the, and, and then how we did the financing for the thing was critical um, because these sorts of programs uh, are always the first to get killed when there's any sort of a squeeze on money. It's like, yeah. I'll get rid of that diversity thing. We're done with that. So I had to fund it in such a way that that couldn't happen. It was funded directly by the recipients of the program. So the people who were sponsoring these apprentices, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, they paid for it directly. I did not have a central budget that could be choked off, right? Mm -hmm. So it actually had financial longevity 
um, because of the way we got it funded. And Interesting. That was, uh, turned out to be pretty important as well. So all of that, all all of those challenges. Yeah, I think um, you know, in the work that I do, when you have someone trying to spearhead such a big change initiative, and as you mentioned, there's so much that goes into it, so much internal bias and conversation and defensiveness and, uh, you know, feeling intimidated by someone coming in, supposedly doing something similar to you. And we're all human, right? At our core, we're all trying to take one step forward at a time and do what we need to do. But it all comes down to some of those same fears I think we all deal with. What do you think in terms of your your leadership? Oh, go ahead. I I was just going to say on the plus side, but maybe you're going to ask this anyway. Yeah, go ahead. You share. All right. So on the plus side, you know, how, okay, there's a lot of challenges, but what, how, how do you get past that? Well, first and foremost is that we have a company mission written on my, my employment badge that says empower every person on the planet to achieve more, right? Mm. It's like, okay, well, that's, I can drive a truck through that. <laughs> it's yes. Like, how can we empower everyone on the planet if we can't even empower our own employment practices, mm-hmm. right? So that was um, critical. And having support from the top and the side, I mean, I mentioned some people who are resistant, but really from the top, you know, the head of HR, Kathleen Hogan, from the beginning, you know, like our second or third cohort was like, I'm with you, right? I will. I can't give you a ton of money, but I can uh, tell everybody that this is a thing, right? Yes. So we had several layers of pretty senior VPs who were like, this is ha- happening, right? Yeah. So really, it's the middle layer that you're really dealing with. But from the top, we had support. And that was critical. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, what I was curious about was in terms of your role in leading that program, what, do you, what did you find were some of your most surprising leadership lessons that came about to help you to to sway the 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 resistant people um i would say that it came in two different two different phases the first phase was we we literally went through my rolodex of people i knew at the company and they became our first customers and these are friendlies right uh some of them at least so it was important that I was in a position that I'd been at the company long enough that I had enough people that knew me and knew of my good works outside of this, you know, because most of the time that I've been doing engineering, um, there were enough people who had an attitude towards me, which was, oh, William's doing something. Okay, we trust him. Let's try it out. Yeah. Right. First and foremost, that was super important. Um, and then when the the various other uh, challenges came along or things that surprised me and, and, and we had to work through um, was just about the the resistance and us looking back on ourselves and saying, why do we have to be the ones to pay for this? And what I mean by pay for it is um, you're paying for it with your career, right? Your career's mm-hmm. on the line here. You're doing something oddball right? Mm. Uh, you're paying for it and perhaps you're not getting that promotion that the people who just kept their head down and wrote code, you know, and, and you had and you get to these points where you're meeting resistance. Mm-hmm. And you just think, I thought the company wanted this, why do I have to deal with all this resistance? Yeah. And what I learned was that my personal convictions were super important. Right? 
I had to say, I'm not doing this because I'm getting a giant paycheck at the end of it. To the contrary, almost the opposite happened, you know, as far as financial rewards. So I had to really dig in after a few cohorts and say, why am I doing this? And develop um, or let emerge the true vision that I had and the true convictions, right? It's like, look, William, you can just stop. Stop this nonsense. Why are you taking all this pain and suffering? You know, because intergenerational development is important, right? And if I'm not doing it, specifically me, the next person down who could do it is probably quite a few years out, if ever, Mm -hmm. right? Now's the time. Now's the place. I'm the person. This must happen, right? So this Mm -hmm. is something I discovered about myself is that at times you are called to do something (laughs) and you get to decide whether you answer that call or not, right? Mm -hmm. This was my moment. I was called to do something and I rose to the call and took the arrows in the back and said, no, this is happening. Yeah, I am not going to give up. Um, So the conviction is that, right? It's like you believe in it strongly enough uh, and have perseverance to say, this is going to be a multi-year thing. This is not like one and done. It's like, no, this is a 10-year journey, (laughs) right? Mm. And if you're not into it, if you don't have conviction about it, just stop, right? So I learned that your own personal conviction and having a personal vision of where this is going um, was super important, right? More so than I've ever had on like a piece of software. Right. 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 Cause it's cultural transformation, not just, ah, ship this program. <laughs> yeah. You're heavily invested in it's, it's you, it's your, your career, your energy and, and your, um, even the emotional toll, you know, as you said, of, of taking the arrows in the back. And, and even though you did have great support from many, you I'm sure had, Plenty of pushback. As the well. arrows still came. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The arrows still, even with support. So it's support. It's not a shield. Yes. Good point. Good point. So you said there that your personal conviction was intergenerational development is necessary. Yes. Tell me more about why that's yeah, absolutely. personal to you. Um. Well. Uh, being a, a black child of the 60s, um, I did not grow up in a place where I was called bad names and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I was I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So I certainly was aware of, you know, the place of black folks in the United States, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and this generalizes to any minority group in any situation. I'll talk about Africa, perhaps. Um, but being in that situation, you get a sense where it's like, and, and it's told to you as a child, you must work twice as hard to get half as much, right? Uh, this is a common phrase that if you grew up Black in America, most people my age grew up with that phrase in their head because all mm. of our parents told us that. And that's a sense of like, dang, what, what a bad hand. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's not fair, but it is what it is. So... Growing up, um, and all this, all the, it's not a cliche, but all the, the, the things like, oh, I'm the only, right? I've always been the only in tech. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've told other people at Microsoft until about five years ago, the number of black people I ever saw in any given meeting was exactly zero. 
<laughs> for at least 15 years. It's like maybe one other person here and there, but most of the time it was just me, the only black guy in a meeting. Now you could say, so what? And it's like, yeah, it is kind of a so what for the most part, but it, it wears on you. Yeah. Um, and when younger people are growing up and they're looking towards what can they do, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they look at people and see, well, what are black people doing or allowed to do or succeeding at? Uh, if all they see, now back in the 60s, there was a lot of civil rights leaders and lots of you know, activity going on, lots of people in lots of different professions. Um, in modern times, most of the black folks see is either sports figures, entertainers, you don't see a lot of um, black scientists who are out there and well-known um, people in, in tech. So they don't know necessarily that those salaries are good, that you can get an equity share in a company. And, you know, those examples aren't out there. So when you go to, you know, uh, Oakland, you know, who, who are they going to look up to? They're going to look up to Steph Curry mm -hmm. and they're going to try to become a basketball player. Well, one in a million. So right. what are the rest of you going to do? Right, right, <laughs> right? so true. What are the rest of you going to do? So, and it's true for Blacks, and it's true for um, girls and uh, looking up to female leaders. Now, I think we've done a lot more work in this country for women uh, specifically. So there's there are, um, I'll say some, I won't say there's a ton, but there's more examples. Mm -hmm. So I, I think of things like that where it's like, well, you need to give examples so that that Black child... Um, or that girl or that whatever minority can look to something and go, I, I could do that. Yeah. And that's good because then they have an option other than um, picking oranges, which is what I grew up around, picking oranges, picking strawberries, you know, um, working multiple jobs, um, not quite really making it, just being able to pay rent and that's it, right? Mm. Uh, so I, I want people to have options. So yes. that's why it's useful to say, hey, here's a here's an option. Here's how you can get in the tech path. Yeah, right. That's an option. Look what I've done. Look with this program. Uh, this is your entree. This is your way in. And look what it can result in. Right? Yeah. Once they do that, they have better income, they can now send their kids um, to better schools, they can live in better neighborhoods. Uh, the outcomes intergenerationally are going to get better, yeah. right? Um, so that's why I think it's important because when you look at something like, I heard some statistics about a neighborhood in um, Atlanta where the graduation rate for black young black men was like 30% or less. Mm -hmm. it was, no, no it, was, it was worse than that. It was a really low number. It was, it was abysmal, right? And I just thought that's, you're, we're, we're wasting our talent intergenerationally yeah. because yeah. all those guys that didn't graduate from high school, they're going to become early dads or whatever. And they're going to, and it just perpetuates. Yeah. You can look at a problem like that and go, what can I do? Do I get the money? Do I go tutor? What, you know, boys and girls club, what they need jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so you need to create opportunities where people like that can go into jobs that are going to get them out of that. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's super important to me because it's what I can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's right in your, it's right in your area of influence, your area of authority and your, I mean, so many examples, if we were to, to go down your, your, um, your bio of how you've 
taken that position and said, let me let me smooth over or create the path for others to come behind me. I think it's it's incredibly inspiring and um, and gives all of us something to to really shoot for. You know, when when we do have the if you want to call it privilege, if you want to call it um, the results of your labor, uh, whatever it is for for each individual in their own story, I think all of us have a a responsibility to look back and say, how can we make a difference for someone else? And I, I just love that that's such a big part of who you are and what you do. Talk to me about this term techquity that you coined. Yeah, techquity, I was just casting about for something to describe what I care about, what I want and what I want to do very succinctly, right? So I, I eventually came up with techquity. Techquity means uh, you leveraging technology uh, an equity stake in tech technology to rise up. So technology and equity, techquity. And what that means specifically is there's a difference between having an iPhone and owning the patents that created the iPhone, or at least having stock in the company that created the iPhone, right? And yeah. that's true across all tech. Um, you can be a consumer of tech, and we're all consumers of tech. That doesn't make any of us rich. Right? right. The person who gets rich is the person who owns the technology, has an equity share in the technology. Right. Yeah. Um, and then an, an, an easy way to point this out is if you look at the Forbes, you know, top uh, 10 billionaires in the world today or something like that, the top six or at least uh, six of the 10 are tech people, specifically tech guys. Mm. Right. Um, Bill Gates is still on the list for the last 20 years, you know, and he's, he's still hanging in there uh, and he's rapidly going to give away all his money. But, you know, he's still there. But you've got Mark Zuckerberg and um, Bezos and Musk hmm. um, and a few other guys. And it's like, OK, clearly that is where the equity share takes you. That's yeah. where tech takes you to the top. Now, that doesn't mean that every one of us has to strive to be a multi-billionaire and try to get on the top 10 list, but it does tell you where the focus of the world's attention is. And when the focus is like that, that's usually where the power dynamics exist as well, right? That's how laws get written. That's how regulations mm -hmm. get written. That's how your neighborhood um, is going to get a school and that other one isn't. It's going to be based on people allocating money and that money is going to be coming from tech probably, right? Right. For the most part. So it behooves you to have an equity share in technology because as the rising tide of tech lifts up, you have an equity boat, if you will. So you'll rise up as well. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you just get drowned by it, right? Yeah. Uh, so a rising tide lifts all boats and everyone else drowns. So you, you better have a boat, <laughs> right? <laughs> So techquity is about building those boats so that as tech rises, and tech is everything, it's not just Microsoft, Google, Facebook, it's everything is tech. Um, so as technology rises, you have an equity share in that rise. Therefore, your wealth, your family, your influence, your ability to vote, your ability to uh, have outcomes that you like um, rises as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's techquity. Little tiny word, big, big meaning. Big meaning. I love it. I love it. I think it needs to become more more said. Um, 
William, when you talk about this personal conviction you have to develop people, to have that inter intergenerational um, rising of the boats, as you say, tell us the story of another time that that drove you past, you know, the hiccups, the the obstacles. And, and, you know, we all get to points where we feel like we just don't have anything left to give. Um, have you been through some of those mm. times as, as that motivation continued to drive you? Yeah, I probably reached back a little bit and, 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 well, it's kind of leap related, kind of not. So in what year was that? 2018 or 19? Mm. Um, I had a, a young engineer at the company say, hey, we, we need to get in. We need to be in Africa. We need a development center in Africa, engineering. And I was introduced to him by another African. And, and they had been working on this for 10 years prior, you know, trying to get the company to create a development center in Africa. And they're just kind of running into a brick wall. You know, it's mm -hmm. like lots of nodding of the heads lots of attaboys and go talk to so-and-so and then it would always just keep fizzling. Um, and so I said, oh, so I had the conversation. I talked to the various people who were working on it. I thought, wait a minute. Okay, the, the challenge is you're, you're going about it wrong. You keep going to the top and that's not how things work in the company. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, The way things work at Microsoft is you go and do something and then you, you can shore it up with support, but you have to actually do it. Uh, so I, I went back and um, hired people, you know, in Kenya to get the ball rolling, to say, look, here, let's just hire them. Um, let's have them work on whatever. It doesn't matter. We set the salaries. We worked out all the details of finance and HR and all this other sort of stuff. And then within a year, the rest of the company comes with a supportive windows and we've got it from here. Thank you very much. And now we've got 650 people there in Kenya and in Nigeria. But the conviction thing there was being able to look at Africa and, and come up with the, like, why bother, right? Mm. Why, who cares? Why do you have to stick your neck out for this? You're not going to get rewarded for doing this. And people are just going to think you're crazy. It's like, because my badge says empower every person on the planet to achieve yeah. more. The African continent is 1.2 billion people. How can you ignore that? Yes. <laughs> right? We had zero engineering there. How can you ignore that? So I'm convicted. I, I believe what it says on the badge, you know, even though it may be marketing, who cares? It says, and I take it literally, empower every person on the planet to achieve more. Um, you can't do that by ignoring huge swaths of the physical planet as well as the, the human bodies on the planet, right? 1.2 billion is not a small number. Um, so that took some conviction. It took some cajoling. It took to creating a, a video and um, hiring people and just being out there. Um, it, it, that one wasn't an arrows in the back. That was more of a, okay, thank you. We've got it from here. So we just had to push to get to the tipping point, mm -hmm. right? And then it's it's essentially hands off. And now I get to just tell it as a story of something that I helped catalyze help push yeah um but there's plenty of other leaders now it's like i'm the leader of mm -hmm. africa it's like yeah good on you do you know it's because i push <laughs> you know absolutely so these sorts of these sorts of things you have to you have to know that you may not get all the accolades afterwards right 
Um, and you have to be okay with that. You have mm-hmm. to be okay with the fact of, like in that particular situation, my thought process was, I want to increase the number of um, melanin enhanced people in the yeah. company over the next 10 mm-hmm. years. Now that means Africa, it means the Caribbean, it means Mexico and South, uh, South America in general, you know. Um, how are we gonna do that? Well, I have the history of India and what we did in India is we have a steady state of a couple thousand engineers there, which feeds a few hundred to Redmond every year, mm-hmm. right? 10%. Well, if we can do the same thing in Africa, the same thing's gonna happen. If mm-hmm. I get up to a couple thousand engineers in Africa, mm-hmm. at least a couple hundred are gonna drift over to the US every year, right? And that's gonna change the, the melanin count <laughs> for the company. So. This is a strategy that's a 10-year-out strategy, right? Mm-hmm. You're saying, well, we have to hire these people now. And if this evolves the way we want, in 10 years, not only are we going to have an awesome development center on the continent, but we're also going mm-hmm. to have this diaspora where a lot of Microsoft people of color are going to be all over the place because that's mm-hmm. just what happens, right? So you have to have... Um, uh, you have to have a, a vision like that, a conviction. Um, and it doesn't have to be as grand as that. This is Microsoft, so it's a world-sized company. But at whatever level you're at, yeah. <laughs> you have to have some sort of a vision and you have to be convicted about it enough to say when the naysayers come and start saying, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, why, why do we have to do that? Why don't we focus on, you know, Romania instead? And you have to be able to say, nope, this is this is worthwhile, we're gonna keep at this, right? Yeah. Um, that's what's required. What do you think has been- So that's biggest... another time where where I've, I've really had to have that conviction. Yeah. What have you found has been the, the biggest reward for you personally in, in all of these struggles? Hmm. Oh, well, easy. The emails from people who say, you've changed my life hmm. for the better. Right. I mean, forget about any software I've written. There's some software I've written that's existed for the last 20 years. It's like, okay, that's nice. Um, but none of that software has had the impact of a single person saying, you've changed my life for the better. Right. That's worth it. I, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, just think about it. How many times in your life do you get to have someone tell you, you've changed my life? Um, and it's happened several tens of times because we've touched thousands of lives. So yeah. several people um, are now living a, a different, they have different life choices because of some convictions I had, yeah. right? Uh, it's like, okay, what more do you want out of life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? doesn't get any better than that, yeah. really. I Depending totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to people. It comes down to people and yeah. the, the meaningful changes that we can help create. Yeah. So exactly. William, thank you for sharing all this. Where can um, where can people learn more about you, both what you're doing with Microsoft and also, you know, some of your personal projects? Um, William-A-Adams.com. Okay. It's a website. It's got some mm-hmm. stuff on it. It's got links to Facebook and Twitter and not Facebook, sorry, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, maybe even Instagram. 
Yeah, so I, I'm just doing stuff. And if I do, it shows up there. Wonderful. Wonderful. And as we close today, William, you're you're making a difference in so many areas. You've tapped into that um, personal juice, I call it, the good juice of, of personal motivation around something that's meaningful to you. Um, how do you unwind as you, you know, finish your end, the end of a long week or a long month? What's your secret sauce for kind of decompressing and unwinding? Oh, I have young kids, so <laughs> they both keep you on your toes and, and always introduce you to wonderful <coughs> new things. So it might be a bike ride. It might be cleaning the garage. It might be um, we added a slack line to their play set in the backyard a few nice. weeks back, inflating inflating the pool for the 90-degree weather. You know, yeah. it's just... Um, I would say it's it's a, a mix between family, writing code, fiddling about in my garage, you know, anything that's um, perhaps less cerebral, because mm -hmm. programming is very cerebral, you're always in your head. So anything that gets out of my head is physical, like riding a bike with my mm -hmm. son, um, that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. just being human. Yeah. 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 People always like to hear those things, you know, they're like, Oh, <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> it's yeah. Good. It's just normal stuff. Right. It's a good it's reminder. Like, okay. Right. Buying some pop and fresh dough and making cinnamon rolls with the kids. Yeah. That's pretty fun. Watching my daughter draw some art and going, yeah, that's very nice for the thousandth time. <laughs> yeah. All the dad stuff. I'm, I'm with you there. I've got, I've got two ones of my own, two little ones of my own. Well, again, William, thank you for your time. It was such a pleasure getting to know you better and, and hearing about what makes you tick on the inside. So thank you. Thank you, Leela. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by Leadership Impact Strategies. We help today's business leaders to navigate the people challenges of this pandemic era. With a focus on compassionate leadership, we help you eliminate team dysfunction and increase your own leadership capability, resulting in higher profits, sales, and results to your bottom line. Like what you heard on today's episode? Turbocharge your own leadership by grabbing our free resources. Discover your leadership strengths and potential blind spots with our leadership quiz, or grab our free checklist for holding an engaging team meeting. Find them both and more at www.leadershipimpactstrategies.com forward slash resources. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to Fuel Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts so you'll be notified of every new episode. Until then, I'm Leela Ansart. Here's to you finding the fuel you need today. Today.